Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Bonnie Glazer, and I am a senior associate with the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. Uh, thanks so much for coming out today. It's a Friday afternoon, and uh, a nicer day, warmer weather than we have had. Uh, but really a, a, a pleasure to have you, and I think uh, you will find that uh, this will be a very interesting um, and valuable conversation that we're going to have today on uh, relations between uh, the United States and China. And we have uh, two very distinguished guests to join me in this discussion today. Uh, Professor Wang Ji Si is the Dean of the School of International Studies at Beijing University. And before that, he was director of the Institute of American Studies at the Chinese Academy of uh, Social Sciences and is certainly one of uh, China's leading experts on the United States. So we're very, very pleased to have him here with us today. And on my right, uh, many of you know, is Ambassador uh, John Negroponte, who has had a very uh, long and distinguished career uh, in the U.S. government and uh, the Foreign Service. Uh, just in um, recent years under uh, President uh, George W. Bush. Uh, he was the, uh, un the United States permanent representative to the United Nations, ambassador to uh, Iraq, uh, of course, uh, our country's first director of national uh, intelligence, and uh, then his latest position was as the deputy secretary uh, of, of state. And since leaving government, uh, he has joined uh, McClarty Associates and also will be on the faculty at Yale University. Uh, so we're very, very pleased to have uh, Ambassador Negroponte and uh, Professor Wang Ji Su with us today. So what we plan to do uh, is have a conversation about uh, Sanu-American relations. And after we chat for a while, we will invite uh, all of you to join our conversation by posing uh, some questions uh, to, to our guests. I'd like to start uh, by talking a little bit about the senior uh, dialogue and the perspectives that both China and the United States and you as individuals have on this dialogue. It was in, I think, November 2004 when President Hu Jintao met with President Bush uh, on the margins of the APEC meeting at Santiago, uh, Chile, uh, and proposed that our two countries hold a high-level strategic dialogue. And that evolved into what we came to call the senior dialogue and, uh, and China came to call the, uh, the strategic dialogue. So I'd like to start by asking you, uh, Professor Wang, what were Beijing's expectations uh, and objectives in proposing these talks? And were China's expectations met? I think at that time, uh, when China initiated the strategic line, first of all, I think now it is called strategic dialogue or strategic dialogues uh, with the plural form uh, or strategic and economic dialogues. Uh, and I'm happy for, uh, with this change uh, because in the past few years, uh, there were different, one dialogue, different names, uh, two different names, and they are now the, the same name. Um, I think when China initiated the dialogue uh, with the cooperation, of course, uh, of the Bush administration, there were many doubts uh, in the world, especially in the United States, as to what China's future would look like and what the future of the world would look like. Uh, the chi China's future was shaped by, of course, its domestic politics, 
and to a certain extent by the international environment. But then we heard uh, China threat theory and China collapse theory, and then many people cast doubts about whether China and the United States would uh, confront each other in international relations like other powers did in the past. So there was also a book published uh, entitled um, the, the tra Tragedy of Great Powers. Uh, so I think that that strategic dialogue started with uh, the Chinese desire to uh, dilute or dispel some of the, di uh, the doubts about China. So it was not simply uh, current uh, situations uh, and the immediate issues like North Korea, but something in the long in the long run. Uh, especially, uh, and then, for instance, the, the Chinese explained to the American side what China's long-term intentions are, and uh, explained the political situation, political uh, institu institutions in China, like the Communist Party. Uh, like the you know, uh, uh, difficulties China was faced with. And that was one of the reasons why um, Dai Bingguo uh, invited uh, Ambassador Necroponti to his hometown in Guizhou to, ha to have a sense of what China looks like in the countryside. Mm. So they are broadening their uh, scope of, uh, uh, of uh, interest uh, to look at the real situations in the United States, real situation in China, so that uh, they will have a broader uh, perspective. So I think the Chinese uh, proposal was based on the assumption that there should be more understanding between the two countries, two uh, bodies politique, not only the two, two, two governments, but of course in the, gov in the government also there should be more expanded interest. Mm -hmm. Well, from your perspective, uh, Ambassador Negroponte, you led, I think, four rounds of uh, this dialogue. What did we accomplish, and uh, where, if uh, in any areas, did we fall short? Mm. Uh, first, uh, maybe I can uh, uh, cause some confusion here with respect to the nomenclature, because uh, my understanding uh, is that this started out as one dialogue and then split into two. And I think uh, initially my predecessor, uh, Robert Zellick, was responsible for the dialogue. But then when Secretary Paulson became Secretary of Treasury, we had a s strategic economic dialogue on the one hand, which encompassed, uh, as, it named, as its name obviously suggests, uh, a range of economic uh, issues between the two countries. And then the dialogue that uh, I conducted was called the Senior Dialogue, for some reason, to, to give it a different name. And I don't think it's clear uh, what the mechanism is going to be going forward. I, I'm sure there'll be ample dialogue, uh, and I think it was a very good thing, and it augured very well for uh, relationships between the United States and China and between the United States and East Asia generally that Secretary Clinton's first overseas trip uh, uh, was to that uh, part of the world. But in terms of uh, what it accomplished, uh, my, my view is that uh, this it has been an attempt, and I think it's succeeded in large measure, to institutionalize uh, some kind of... Uh, 
to create a mechanism for a discussion of whatever it is we want to discuss. I think part of the genesis of all of this was a desire to avoid, uh, on the part of both sides, uh, any kind of a hiatus or interruption in the relationship as we have from time to time experienced uh, over the years. And perhaps by the creation of this dialogue and the existence of this mechanism, we could avoid that kind of, uh, of uh, occurrence. Although, frankly, I mean, if relations are going to be disrupted for one reason or another, they, uh, there's probably nothing that can mm-hmm. stop that. But uh, this is a device that, that certainly can be useful uh, from time to time. So I, I felt that that was one of the things it accomplished. I think from an American point of view, from the American point of view, uh, Bob Zellick uh, coined this phrase. I believe he's the one who coined it of uh, trying to encourage China to be a responsible stakeholder in the international system, to not just uh, export its products to the rest of the world, collect the foreign exchange, and then say thank you very much and not take that much interest in, uh, in uh, a whole range of international issues uh, far from China's shores. So, so that certainly was one of our objectives. And during the time I conducted the dialogue for our side, I felt that uh, quite a bit of progress had been made in that regard. Not only were we talking about uh, regional issues such as the situation on the Korean Peninsula, but we uh, wandered quite far afield, whether it was uh, uh, Darfur or or other issues, questions uh, concerning Africa or uh, the administration of foreign assistance uh, and so forth. So uh, where did it fall short? Well, I I don't feel it, it felt it fell short in any particular way. One of the issues we were trying to uh, address towards the end of my tenure was how to get uh, more of a military dialogue going. It had been suspended uh, by China in the wake of uh, the latest uh, arms sales that we announced to Taiwan in in September. And I see from uh, the news reports of David Sedney's recent trip to Mm -hmm. uh, Beijing, that that now is back on track. And I think that's good. And I think we need to have the same kind of notion with respect to our military discussions as we do with our political ones, which is let's not just interrupt them because something happens that one side or the other doesn't like. I mean, in fact, those are probably uh, the most important times uh, to continue to to carry on these discussions. And I hope that uh, we can avoid those kinds of interruptions in the future. May I add something to that? <coughs> I think before uh, uh, Bob Zelik raised the idea of China should become a, s- a responsible stakeholder, uh, the Chinese side already had put forward the idea of China being uh, rising peacefully, uh, or China's peaceful rise, or then they modify that to become some, something called peaceful de- the road of peaceful development. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think at that time, there was a great deal of emphasizing China's peaceful role. But as uh, uh, Ambassador Necroponte pointed out, then they had more diversified interests to cover a, a wider range of topics, uh, not simply whether China will, China's rise will be peaceful or not, but what China's role will be played in mm-hmm. uh, the international organizations, and I think the Chinese side, there was an immense interest in discussing with Americans on the subject of how to look at international 
uh, organizations, international regime, the whole international system, and China, the Chinese side tried to convey the idea that we are not going to disrupt the existing international order, uh, although we want to some, some reform in that regard. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting uh, perspectives. You know, despite the establishment of uh, these, the senior dialogue, the strategic economic dialogue, and I think there are at least uh, 60, if not more, official dialogue mechanisms that exist between our two countries. Uh, many observers nevertheless uh, believe that there is a profound level of strategic mistrust between the United States and, and China. And so I'd like to ask you, uh, Professor Wang, uh, whether you agree with that assessment and if you can explain from the Chinese perspectives, the perspective of the, the Chinese public, the Chinese elite, um, why, are, uh, why is there so much mistrust of the United States? And what particular steps of uh, reassurance could the United States take? What is China looking for in order to dispel this, this mistrust that would remove these obstacles that would enable us to have uh, what Ambassador Negroponte was talking about, a more serious uh, military dialogue and cooperation between our two countries uh, across the range of, of issues that we have so many shared interests. I think uh, on the Chinese side, this, the mistrust of the United States, as you pointed out, I think that is true, has very deep historical roots. Uh, uh, looking back, at ten, uh, 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, when well, there was a, a boxer, boxer uh, uh, uprising and then uh, uh, a lot of troubles in China uh, that brought uh, down the Qing dynasty. At that time, uh, the, the Chinese elites and uh, public figures look at the United States as part of the uh, imperialist world. Uh, although there was the open door policy in, uh, proposed by John Hay, uh, John Hay uh, uh, some people would say that the United States was uh, hyper, uh, uh, hypercritical. They wanted to compete with Japan and European imperialist powers to dominate China. So from the beginning, there was some kind of mistrust. Uh, and then it deepened when the United States did not give enough support to China uh, to resist the, uh, Amer uh, Japanese aggression in, in the 1930s. And even when the, the two countries became allies, there was some mistrust between Chiang Kai-shek and his, uh, his uh, top American advisor, General uh, Stelwell. So uh, mistrusted, <laughs> no, did not This only is a very long list. <laughs> so you could start from there, and then long you look at the, the history of the PRC-US relations, <laughs> starting from the Korean War, and then the uh, uh, offshore <laughs> island crises, and the, the Vietnam War, and so on. And then until uh, rec more recently, embassy bombing, which uh, is seen in China still today as intentional and intentional effort and EP3, and now we have books like Currency Wars, uh, translations like a book called uh, uh, Con The Confessions of uh, an Economic Hitman, who want, mm. you know, people want here, has a lot of, have a lot of conspiracies to put China down. 
to keep China weak. So that is a popular notion starting from history. Mm. So in, in, if we look at the current situation, then I don't think it is a secret to, 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 to tell that you know, uh, in real uh, military planning, the United States is seen as China's uh, adversary or potential enemy in the battlefield. If China want, uh, wanted to recover Taiwan uh, through military means if necessary. And on the US side, uh, you know, a great deal is, 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 is done to pre prevent China from getting that cap capability to, uh, to fight uh, a war with the United States. So uh, from historical perspective and to current affairs, that, that kind of this mistrust it has existed for so many years. So if well, what is the solution? I think we can try to improve relations at the very fundamental levels, uh, societal uh, levels, education. You know, for instance, we have very different readings of history. My reading, you know, my account of history uh, would not be accepted by many here in the United States. I, I for instance, uh, several years ago when I, I had some critical ideas about U.S. policy toward China, I received a letter from an American saying, well, if we didn't save you in World War II, you would not speak English, you would speak Japanese. Uh, <laughs> so we have very different readings of history. Uh, and so, uh, and then we should uh, cement the cooperation uh, between the two countries in a number of issue areas. And then some mistrust will, 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 will get away in the long run. I think that uh, certainly Americans have uh, some mistrust about China, but I would prefer to characterize at least the, uh, the majority or mainstream view, if you will. It's really uncertainty about China's direction, because China to this day is still not very transparent about um, what its long-term uh, objectives and ambitions are. And if we, uh, we know that China is now in a period that it calls a period of strategic opportunity from now until the year 2020. Uh, but if China achieves the goals that it has set out for itself uh, in the year 2020, it still, I think, remains uncertain uh, what China is going to do with the comprehensive national power uh, that it is uh, amassing. So there are many people, I think, in the United States, and particularly the, this, the, uh, the previous administration, the Bush administration, articulated in many of its documents a strategy of hedging against the emergence of uh, a China that acts in ways that are detrimental to uh, Yeah, I'm areas. sorry. I, you know, I don't well, agree I, with that. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I yeah, look forward I'm, to I'm hearing your I'm not sure we've been working on the same issues here. Well, my question to you is uh, what, role if, uh, what role does hedging play or should hedging well, play in okay. the U.S. strategy? First of all, uh, you know, with regard to the mistrust, while I appreciate Professor Wong's uh, historical uh, discussion, I think it frankly, conflates uh, sort of popular misgivings on the one hand with official policies on the other. So I think we need to be clear that we don't walk around. Uh, I mean, I don't think people walk around with the kinds of attitudes uh, in the policy arena and the leadership um, of our country uh, with those kinds of thoughts about China. So when we get to the question of, of misgivings, 
I mean, uh, the dialogue, uh, the uh, efforts to uh, strengthen the relationship uh, in the economic arena between our two countries, uh, the uh, fact that in this, this administration, the transition to this administration from the previous one, there was no, uh, there was no crisis in the initial weeks or months of the administration, mm-hmm. as there was when the transition from Bush uh, 41 to President Clinton, or from President Clinton to Bush 43, President uh, Bush 43. So, um, I mean, I think the atmosphere is, uh, and the environment is a little more benign than, the, than either of your sets of, of comments uh, is uh, suggesting. I mean, we've been working together on things like, uh, well, the Korean Peninsula. I mean, the the area of the most sensitive and the probably the most sensitive strategic area in the north uh, in the in the Northeast Asia region is the question of denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, and that has become an issue of intense cooperation between our two countries. And uh, you know, I start off most of my presentations about the world uh, picture with the statement that we do not live in an era of geostrategic tension between the great powers. And if you look at the permanent five members of uh, the, the United Nations Security Council, our relationship with China is frankly better than ever. And uh, on the issue of Taiwan, if you look at what the Bush administration actually did during those eight years, um, I think you can see that we worked quite hard to uh, minimize tensions on that subject as well. So I just I come at it from a slightly different direction, and I've never walked around with a paranoid uh, attitude towards where China is going. I, and I and I remember discussing this with President Bush. I mean, I think he takes at face value. He took at face value. Uh, President Hu Jintao's statement that his single biggest priority was finding jobs for 25 million Chinese every year. Mm-hmm. And I think he accepted, and I think the, the top leadership of our country accepted uh, the proposition that China's principal concern is its own domestic economic development and not some kind of strategic expansionism. So now I think I've explained why I didn't agree with mm-hmm. the tone of the comments that preceded. Well, I absolutely agree with you that uh, China's priority uh, is domestic. Uh, but I'd, I'd still like to follow up and ask specifically whether you think that there is a need for the United States to hedge, and if so, against what and how we should do that hedge? Uh, not really. I mean, first of all, there's nothing we can do about China's uh, uh, military development. If it chooses, it's got the sovereign right to do it. It's a nuclear power. It's a big country. It's got a lot of resources. I think, uh, I think probably the wisest thing we can do is encourage China to be uh, transparent about its military uh, intentions, its acquisition plans, to have the kind of dialogue that we're talking about so that we sit down at the table, both uniformed officers and civilian leaders, to talk about, each, for each of us, to talk about our military strategies and uh, plans and intentions because that's certainly one important way of avoiding uh, misunderstandings. But, uh, I mean, uh, what would you do to hedge? Uh, double the 
Pentagon budget? You're not going to do that. It's big enough <laughs> as it is. It's 10 times as large as China's military budget. Okay. Professor Wang, uh, Ambassador uh, Negroponte raised the Taiwan issue, so I'd like to follow up and ask you a question uh, about that. China has really been, I think, very ambivalent in recent years about the role of the United States in the cross-strait relationship and in the Taiwan issue. And there have been times when China has not wanted the United States to intervene or play any role. And then there have been times when China has welcomed uh, the, Uni the United States uh, playing a role, especially when uh, Chen Shui-bian was president uh, in Taiwan. And, uh, and George W. Bush, as Ambassador Negroponte noted, uh, took a very firm stance uh, in, uh, it against a, uh, a, a st possible step by Taiwan to, change, to unilaterally change the status quo and uh, did not support uh, independence for Taiwan. So if you look at the situation that prevails today, um, where, where is the pendulum at this particular moment? How does China look at the U.S. role in the Taiwan issue? What role would China, like, would China like the United States to play in the amelioration of relations between the two sides of the strait? I think China now has a more sophisticated understanding of U.S. policy toward Taiwan and U.S. attitude. I mean, the American attitude at large uh, about Taiwan. Uh, and in the past, I think there was, has been some kind of evolution, as you uh, alluded to. Uh, in, in the years before the mid-1990s, most Chinese would say, you know, it was the United States which was supporting Taiwan independence for its own strategic roles. So Taiwan independence would not exist if, w without United States support. But I think there was some turning point in the, for instance, in 19, 1999, uh, after the embassy bombing, Li Donghui uh, made a statement of two-state theories, uh, you know, trying to take advantage of the tensions between the United States and China uh, after the embassy bombing. And then was somewhat goodwill signal from the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. And that was responded by some kind of Chinese willingness to talk over the Taiwan issue with the United States. Uh, so, and, and of course, the, the, the evolution of China's uh, perception of, of U.S. policy toward China, Taiwan was uh, together with certain kind of uh, uh, shift of focus of U.S. policy toward Taiwan, uh, especially after September 11, 2001. Uh, th there was so much that the United States should do in the world. But you know, some people in Taiwan was just pushing forward their own ideas, their own proposal that could disrupt the overall grand strategy of the United States. So people in China discerned certain uh, changes and certain uh, uh, differences among Americans in their approaches to Taiwan. And then they built their policy toward the United States on these changed perceptions. Uh, and now I think the, the hope is that the United States will continue to serve um, as a counterweight to Taiwan independence. But I think there's very little illusion on the Chinese side that the United States will support unification, peaceful or forceful unification uh, between the two sides. 
So the, the best the United States could do is to welcome, as they are saying, welcome uh, improvement of cross-strait relations, paving the way for more uh, better, better atmosphere uh, for uh, dialogues between the, the Taiwanese and the mainlanders. And at the same time, the United States should uh, continue to say that it does not support Taiwan independence. Uh, of course, the, the, the best thing the U.S. could do, uh, but that could be too, uh, too far to go, was to, 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 uh, is to uh, reduce its arms sales to Taiwan or stop there. But I don't think that is possible at this moment, given the long history. You, um, if, if I could ask you, I was given a signal, could you turn up your volume a little bit so that they can hear a little bit uh, better? You wrote an article in Foreign Affairs several years ago on uh, Sani-U.S. relations. I think it was in 2005, Professor Jisa. And you said that the, uh, China and the United States cannot hope to establish truly friendly relations. And I wonder if, if Taiwan and the mainland solve their differences peacefully, do you, would you still hold that view? Or do you think that there are other obstacles to the United States and China forging truly friendly, trusting relations? I think with, uh, regardless of what Taiwan uh, does and uh, regardless of the cross-strait relations, there will still be some fundamental differences between the United States and China. They have different political systems. They have uh, some different values. Uh, values, And uh, there are two big powers in the world, uh, number one and potentially number two. So the, the relationship will never be easy. Uh, you look at if, if we, are, we, we, we work on realism. Uh, and uh, on top of that, I think uh, I didn't say very much about you know, Chinese perceptions of U.S. objectives in China, which uh, is always uh, regarded as uh, trying to westernize China, to split China up, to divide China. And these uh, worries linger on with, with or without Taiwan. Uh, we, we, talk, you know, we talk here uh, with these informed people. But if you go to China to go to lo local governments, go to those people who are in charge of China's internal security, uh, religious issues, uh, uh, public relations issues, what you call propaganda, you know, whatever information sharing, then you still see many suspicions of U.S. intentions toward China. So I think that is a, is a problem we cannot get rid of, get rid of very easily. Mm. I'd like to turn to the topic of human rights. Can I say something oh, about certainly. Taiwan? Uh, because I, I do think it's important. I mean, I think one of the reasons that relations uh, between uh, the previous administration and the government of China improved as much as they did is because I think we had a better understanding about the uh, Taiwan issue. I don't think we'll ever change the way we articulate. I mean, we're not likely anyway in the foreseeable future to change our uh, 
standard statements about the, the three communiques and the one China policy and all of that. But I think the way we went about it, in the, particularly in the latter part of the Bush administration, and you may recall at one point we got up and plainly said that we thought the referendum in Taiwan was, was wrong, that it shouldn't be conducted. And I, I don't know what effect that had on the outcome of the referendum, but uh, I, I, it seemed like an important development to me. So I, I just wanted to say that I, th- I think that the shift, if you will, uh, both in our posture and also with the change from Chen Shui-bieng to, to Ma Ying-jeou, I think has led actually to a, a real improvement in the cross-strait atmosphere, and I think that's helpful to the cross-strait situation in and of itself, but it also helps the U.S. I believe it helps the U.S.-China relationship. I certainly share that view. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to turn to uh, human rights, if I may. And uh, recently, of course, Secretary Clinton uh, was in Asia, and uh, she told the press during her, her trip there um, that she would raise the human rights issue, of course, with Chinese leaders, uh, but that at the same time, human rights should not be allowed to interfere with other priorities, such as the financial crisis, uh, climate change, and security issues, such as uh, North Korea. What do you think is the appropriate position <laughs> of human rights in U.S. policy toward China? And what are the best means to promote human rights in China, which I think we would all agree right. we'd like to see more This of. is a huge conundrum, not just for our policy towards China. I mean, this is a conundrum for the conduct of U.S. foreign policy and foreign relations as a whole uh, because of our uh, political history, because of our uh, democracy, because of a whole, for a whole host of reasons, uh, the the issue of democracy and human rights around the world uh, is an important issue to the American people, the American Congress, to the American presidency. The issue has always been how do you apply that policy in a way that advances the cause of human rights on the one hand but doesn't undercut the achievement of other important objectives and interests in the conduct of our relations overseas. And without trying to answer you in specific detail, I I just suggest to you that it's a a difficult uh, uh, balancing act. And uh, one of the things I, I certainly would say is that um, it's very hard to conduct foreign relations if, and also to and and to emphasize human rights and our reports on human rights and so forth. If at the end of the road, certain things you say about human rights in another country result in imposing sanctions on that country uh, automatically by uh, legislative fiat, and so I certainly have an issue with the question of sanctions, and I would like to see us able to talk candidly with any country about the human rights situation, and they should feel free to talk with us about our human rights situation. But I'm not sure I see why sanctions need to be part of the process, and I think that complicates the conduct of our relations enormously. Professor Wong, how would you evaluate how the United States seeks to promote human rights in China. Are we doing some things right, or are we getting it all wrong? Um, I think uh, 
Secretary Clinton's uh, remarks in China about human rights uh, were not uh, uh, accidental. Um, I think there is certain change. I, 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 I personally see some changes in U.S. Uh, perceptions, not, sim not because they have different perceptions of the human rights situation in China, but because the two economies are so much intertwined that even many people in the United States would not to see a large scale of social unrest in China because of social tensions building up uh, and because of outer, uh, uh, interferences from other countries. So for the sake of political correctness, some, some things cannot be said. Uh, I know that. And, but for instance, some people would say, well, if you change the, 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 the name of your, your leading party to something else, then we would be in a, in, in a better situation to describe your, your situation. So, so that has nothing to do with the real human rights situation in China. <laughs> and uh, I think, of course, uh, uh, human rights uh, are not perfect in China, as they are not perfect in the United States. Uh, and some advice would be helpful. Uh, uh, to, to remind China that there are some human rights violations here and there, and, and you know that could be helpful. But try not to touch the very sensitivities um, that the, the t where the two countries have directly different ideas, you know, like Tibet, uh, and that is a, almost a. If you touch that, and as we, uh, I, I have a small group of people. Uh, uh, with me when we talk about Tibet, you know, there was no uh, agreement. Uh, there's only the agreement to disagree. Uh, I'm not speaking of myself. I'm, I'm talking about the, the vast majority uh, of Chinese views about Tibet. So it is, is it a human rights issue or is it, is it a deeper issue between China and the outside world? I think that uh, and that people have different uh, definitions of human rights. Some of our definitions, you may see, you may say these are human needs instead of human rights. And then say, we say, you know, human rights violations in the United States, we see, you know, uh, killings or shootings, and that you don't, in this country, you don't see these as human rights violations. You see this as, as something else. Mm -hmm. Let me move to uh, a topic that uh, you and I, Professor Wang, have talked about many times, and that is the uh, debate in China that has uh, percolated now and again uh, about the international structure of power. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was an intense debate in China about what the new international structure of power would be. And some people thought that it would be become very uh, multipolar, and after a time, the assessment was reached in China that the international situation would be one of one superpower and many powers. Since the onset of the financial crisis, it seems that that debate has been triggered once again. There are some Chinese scholars who are saying that the United States is on the decline, uh, some who say that the post-Cold uh, post War era uh, is now being formed, but it is uncertain what it is. Uh, and so I'm interested in your 
perspectives on um, how this debate will impact Chinese policy, if at all. And secondly, if the world were to become truly multipolar, how would this affect China's interests? What would be the benefits and the risks that that would pose for Chinese interests? Good question. I think the, the first Chinese who said the United States was on, de on decline was Mao Zedong in 1945, <laughs> called the United States a, a paper tiger, right? So it's, it's a recurrent, uh, uh, a recurring uh, uh, theme in Chinese politics. Uh, so whenever the United States is, is in trouble, people say the United States is on decline, it will never recover. But I think taking a long view in the, in the last uh, over two, 200 years, the United States has been a rising power. Uh, forget about political correctness here. Um, so in my own perspective, when you say the United States is just declining, what you, when you are comparing the United States with, I mean, the United States in the 1940s or 1950s or in the 1970s when the United States was really on the, on the decline and then it recovered in, during Reagan years. So there, I, I, I myself see the United States still at a very, on a very high uh, uh, plateau. There may be some ups and downs. And then I, the, the next question is whether the decline of the United States is, is in China's best interest. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Because we are so uh, interdependent now. Uh, people in China do not want to see the United States spend more money on its military expansion. But if the United States is really on the decline in economic terms, in financial terms, then China will be a loser, as we are seeing now. The same can be said of U.S. And mentalities uh, of China. If China is losing in economic terms, your business is to lose. But people in the United States do not want to see a stronger Chinese military power. Mostly most people would, would, would complain that China is spending too much on that. But that is the complexity. We cannot avoid that. So, uh, and diplomatically, of course, uh, China could take uh, advantage of some weaknesses of the United States here or there, but we have to look at the specific situation. In North Korea or in Iran or in Africa, I, I don't have time to expand uh, <laughs> uh, the, the idea, but we have to be very careful. I like, yeah, comments? no, I really like your answer. I, um, <laughs> I agree with it. <laughs> I mean, you know, okay, so we were 50% of the world's uh, GNP, I guess, at the end of World War II, and all right, that slipped down to 20 or 25%, but uh, I, I think you're right. We're going to be around for a while. I don't think that uh, any that hypothetical proposition that you put forward may happen someday, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But having said that, so I think we're going to be a, a, a key player for for generations to come, but uh, I think there are adjustments called for, and probably the most important one of which is, uh, and this I think applies to us as a country. Uh, we still, I think, are uh, handicapped by a sort of a Eurocentric view of foreign mm. policy, and uh, it always uh, maddened me when I was. In the in the business because I served in uh, other parts of the world besides Europe for the most of my career and 
I was delighted when I heard that Mrs. Clinton's first trip was going to be to Japan, China, and South Korea, and I thought that was Indonesia. A, uh, and Indonesia, and I thought that was an important message. And clearly, this century, uh, we're going to have to, as a nation, put a lot more emphasis on our relationships with the uh, uh, the Asian countries. And uh, so I'm, I'm I'm hoping that that's one of the things that this administration will do. And there are probably some institutions that will need to be tweaked a little bit in order to take into account this new reality, whether it's the G7, which doesn't have China in it, which can't quite, it's sort of hard to fathom how you can have a group of seven countries to, to meet about uh, economic and financial issues of the world without having the second most important economy in the world represented, second or third. Well, it certainly will be the second uh, pretty in pretty short order and uh, so, I mean, we just have to deal with that question now. I don't know how we're going to, how, how specifically that'll be dealt with, but it's got to be dealt with. I had raised the question because the concern that I have is the, the potential, even though it may be a small one, that uh, analysts and, of course, potentially the leadership in China could miscalculate and could make the wrong assessment about the changing structure of power in the world. And China's foreign policy, I think, is very much based on its assessment of the international situation. Right. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear certainly your assessment uh, that uh, you don't see the United States in decline uh, in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the near future. I think that, that that judgment would be a wrong judgment for China to, to base its future policies on. Let me turn to uh, another uh, question, if I can, Ambassador Negroponte, uh, concerning uh, the future of arms control uh, nuclear uh, reduction talks in, in, in the future. Uh, as you know, uh, at uh, the end of this year, START 1 expires. Uh, we don't usually think about China when we talk about uh, nuclear arms control reduction talks. Uh, but there has been some uh, discussion, I think consideration, of how we might expand these talks in the future uh, and include other countries. Uh, China is engaged in a phase of modernization of its nuclear weapons, which actually has been going on for decades, but they are beginning to deploy some new systems. Uh, and I think their modernization uh, program is aimed at increasing the survivability of their nuclear arsenal uh, and, uh, and its effectiveness. Uh, we all know that the number of China's nuclear weapons is far smaller than we have in the United States. Uh, but if we are, as a, as a nation, to uh, reduce the numbers of our, of our deployed nuclear weapons considerably, some people have talked about going down to perhaps a 1,000 warheads, uh, then the question arises for some uh, about whether we need to ensure that we get caps on, on China's warheads mm -hmm. uh, and whether, therefore, we should be drawing China into uh, this discussion mm -hmm. uh, of arms control. So I'd be interested in hearing your perspectives on Right. Well, I think the first thing I do is ask CSIS to study the matter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be happy to do that. <laughs> I'm not offering to fund this study from the from McClarty Associates. But, <laughs> but with your endorsement. <laughs> because you've uh, uh, taken me to an area that uh, is not one that I've given much thought to. But I think you raise a good question, and I think I probably would give you a general answer, which is um, th this is a kind of issue that probably 
uh, over time cannot be limited to some sort of a condominium discussion between uh, Russia and the United States. Well, I think it's all well and good that we pursue the uh, post-start arrangements with the Russians and so forth. Um, I think you raise the interesting point that um, uh, maybe at some point we want to we need to think about how and through what mechanism uh, one might try to bring uh, China into these kinds of discussions as well. But but I, I really, you're at, outside my comfort zone. Okay. <laughs> I will pose one last question to you, uh, Professor Wang, and then I think we'll open it up uh, to the audience. Uh, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union was obviously viewed uh, by many as the glue that held together the U.S.-China relationship. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there has been, I think, a, a, a long search uh, among many people, not only in China but in the United States, for a new glue that can provide uh, impetus for uh, our cooperation. There are a number of issues that we have cooperated very closely on. We talked about North Korea earlier. Uh, there are certainly uh, many more. Uh, but some Americans have been urging uh, cooperation to fight global warming not only to effectively counter the challenge of global warming, which of course is a very pressing issue, but also to bolster the bilateral relationship to increase trust and to thereby reduce the chances that the relationship could slip into one really of, uh, of mutual antagonism over the coming uh, decade and, and, and longer. So my question to you is, do you believe that cooperation on climate change carries this potential? Is China willing to work with the U.S. on this issue, not just for the sake of reducing emissions, uh, but also to strengthen the U.S.-China relationship? Or will we have to find a hard security issue uh, to work on in order to have a real new glue to hold the relationship together going forward? I don't think we need more glues. We just <laughs> want to use all the existing glues to, to cement the relationship. <laughs> Um, I think it is not exactly uh, right to say that the, uh, the glue uh, that bound, bound China and the United States in the Cold War years was the Soviet Union. I think Mao Zedong wanted to improve relations and Richard Nixon and, uh, and uh, Kennedy, uh, President uh, Kennedy wanted to improve relations much earlier than the uh, common need to deal with the Soviet expansionism. And, and uh, uh, in Deng Xiaoping years, you know, starting from 1979, when Deng Xiaoping visited the United States, he already had on his mind that China's modernization cannot be done without the United States. Uh, that he used the United States as a reference and then a potential cooperator. And then China went into the right direction because of the, the common needs. Uh, and expanding trade and so on. So that it was never a single important uh, driver that drove the, the two countries together. So climate change is one of the very important things. I, I, I welcome this, uh, this, uh, this issue. But climate change in China is linked to some other things. Uh, the economy and the environment at large no, we have serious problems like uh, water pollution, water shortage, and, and food security, and so on and so forth. But in your um, strategic looking uh, uh, vision, uh, climate change, 
looms much larger than other issues. So you, you have to look at China as, as, as in our own uh, perspective. I mean, we are faced with immense problems. You are faced, you know, climate change is one of them. So climate change cannot be a, simply a bas basket in which everything can put in. Um, uh, I think we, we, we need to look at this issue as one of the glues. Uh, you have uh, financial cooperation, you have trade, you have uh, food security, you have uh, uh, intellectual property rights protection, a lot of other things. Uh, on, on this single issue, I think climate change, when we uh, now, I think Chinese, uh, it, it fits in the, the overall goal of the Chinese uh, 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 national strategy or development strategy today. We call it the scientific outlook on development. But at the same time, I think I, I personally heard some complaints among the Chinese that uh, you know, disregard of the, uh, 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 the, the, the rhetoric uh, the United States is not willing to share uh, their techno new technologies and some, uh, some, some, uh, some ideas with China. So uh, I think there should be more delivery. Uh, more shared information, more shared talks uh, uh, in addition to the, to the common goal expressed by the two sides. I think uh, it's a potential area of cooperation and it, I think it was a good thing that Mrs. and, and a signal that Mrs. Uh, that Secretary Clinton brought uh, our chief climate change negotiator with her on her trip uh, to China. But uh, it's going to have to. It's going to be a tough issue. I don't think we should kid ourselves here. This could become also a source of friction between the two countries because one could see a situation emerge quite easily, actually, where we agree to various kinds of limitations, and uh, uh, China uh, is reluctant to make. Uh, caps or, uh, or cuts, uh, at least uh, not uh, do them uh, as, not to go as far as we or others might think uh, is necessary. And if you look at the graphs and you look at China's uh, likely emissions between now and the year 2050, if you don't do anything to change the, the current uh, trajectory, Everything that uh, might be saved in terms of emissions by uh, Europe and uh, the United States could uh, actually be uh, canceled by the increases uh, by China. And I forget whether they included India in that, those pictures as well. But th my only point is that the level of cuts by China and the level of the commitments by, by China uh, might end up uh, in the area of reductions, emission reductions, might become a source of friction between us unless we manage that very carefully. And, and as you suggested, clearly one of the incentives for China to cooperate in that area will be the degree to which we're able to arrange for appropriate uh, technology sharing. Yeah. Okay, well I'd like to open, out, uh, open it up now to, uh, to the audience and I ask that uh, we please wait for the microphone after you're recognized and uh, please uh, identify uh, yourself before asking your question, and uh, please make your question or your statement uh, relatively brief. Okay, here in front, 
uh, and we'll get you a microphone in just a minute. Thank you. I'm Leonard Oberlander, an independent consultant, and uh, I would like to ask for your views uh, re regarding the complexities of, of the uh, bilateral relations between China and the United States and the various uh, areas that, that they've been discussed from defense to economics, uh, cross-strait relations, and so forth. There are two other, if we step out of the government, uh, relations. Two other forces acting here that, that may seem minor but may, may be very significant. One is the trade, uh, actual trade relations, not the government uh, to government uh, regulatory and, and uh, uh, treaty structures, but the uh, investors and executives of the United States in their business relationships with the investors and uh, executives of China. How do you see their relationships uh, affecting the bilateral relations and the international system uh, as has been discussed? And secondly, if we look at technology uh, areas in the United States, in the universities, a very sig a significantly high percentage of uh, PhD students, graduate students in technology and, and sciences, uh, come from China and are doing very well competitively. How, in the, in the US, uh, how also is this contributing to uh, positive forces or <clears throat> adding to, to complexities. All right, thank, thank you. you so much. Do you so want to start? The second question and okay. uh, Ambassador Necroponti respond to the first <laughs> question. <laughs> you know, uh, I, uh, you know, because I work uh, at universities, uh, at the university, I think uh, uh, we have uh, absorbed many, many PhD uh, holders coming back from China coming back to China from the United States, from Europe, from Australia, and they are doing very good service to our education. Um, but that does not mean that they come back with uh, simply um, American ideas or American technologies. Um, they, some of them uh, have uh, better feelings than others based on their own experiences in the United States. So the picture is very mixed. I think uh, uh, they bring about diversified opinions, diversified uh, 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 knowledge about China, about the United States, uh, and as a whole, they are making a great contribution to the education. And uh, they, 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 they make great education to our school as well because we can offer English courses, talk to international students, make uh, ourselves more comfortable with uh, the overall international setting. It, okay. it, maybe the first part of your question, I'm not sure this is a direct answer, but a couple of things. First of all, if you go back, way back to the beginning of the bilateral relationship, the conduct, you know, how to carry out relations at these different levels, commercial or otherwise, was kind of a mystery to everybody. I mean, and everything was a, a huge 
struggle. You, you remember, I mean, just finding office space. Everybody was uh, operating from their hotel rooms in old uh, Soviet-style hotels in downtown Beijing. And, and, and in terms of, um, of American business and international business operating in China, I think things have really improved substantially. And, you know, what big multinational company hasn't done business or doesn't conduct business with China today? So the picture's dramatically improved from where it was before, and I think that contributes positively to the relationship and to the interdependence of our economies. Where I would say that there's still a lot to be done, and it's an oppor- it's both an opportunity and an issue and a problem, and that is, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of Chinese, in- there's a lot of Chinese interest in investing in the United States. And uh, since we got a couple of the first ones wrong, or uh, there were a lot of uh, political problems with respect to uh, you know these some of the initial acquisition attempts. I think it's kind of clouded the atmosphere for uh, potential Chinese investments in the United States in the future. And I think it's very much in the interest of our economy that there be Chinese investment in the United States. So I think we're going to have to work harder. That's the second study for CSIS that I'm commissioning <laughs> <We'll take that laughs> <on>. <laughs> this afternoon on, uh, on how to, uh, let, what's the smart way to go about encouraging Chinese investment here and, and what's the best way to arrange it on our side so that it doesn't run right into all the controversies that it has in the last few instances. Let me add to this. Okay, uh, be I my think guess. I think uh, one a uh, challenge we are facing when Chinese companies want to move into the United States to make money. How can we create jobs for Americans? Uh, uh, and, uh, and then, because China's comparative advantage is cheap labor in, in China, and then is the labor costs are very high in the United States. Uh, and then when they invest in Africa, they can bring, about some, uh, bring with them uh, Chinese workers. Uh, living in Africa, helping the, the African, uh, but in the United States, the, the you have to be very careful uh, not to, to 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 give the impression that they are make, make, making money and run and all they are using the natural resources here without paying back, uh, increasing the, the revenue here and uh, protecting the uh, the environment and abiding by the law, mm. uh, being uh, very clean. Uh, without doing any corruption. Yes. So there are a lot of things you can think about. Yes, and some African countries have had complaints in that regard. Uh, they would like China to use the local labor and uh, create uh, jobs mm-hmm. uh, and abide by the local laws. So uh, that's, uh, that should be done in Africa, not just in the United States. Uh, we'll take another question um, over here. Um, thank you. Um, Jim from the Straits Times. Uh, I've got a question for the two um, panelists. Um, for many years now, the U.S. has been advising and some would say lecturing uh, China on you know, how to open up their economy, how to open up their financial system, but clearly now the United States economy and financial system are both um, in serious trouble, and I'm sure uh, observers and experts in China would rightly ask, um, going ahead, whether they should still listen to the advice of the Americans on the financial system or the economy or anything else in, in, for the matter of fact. So going ahead, how do you think you know, 
this this sense of distrust of, of advice from um, the U.S. Might, might affect bilateral relationships. Thank you. Would you like to begin? Yeah, well, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, China's got uh, done pretty well with its economy and got huge uh, foreign exchange reserves and has had a very impressive uh, growth record. So, I mean, I don't, if we give advice or make suggestions uh, now, it's been in the context of this strategic economic dialogue. And as far as I'm aware, the dialogue has really been that. There's been a real two-way uh, flow. I don't think it's a question of lecturing. And I think that's one of the benefits of these kinds of mechan dialogue mechanisms is you can have these discussions and it, it can be a more free-flowing uh, conversation rather than uh, having the appearance of one side or the other giving each other a lecture. So I, I think it is indeed true that in a face with a financial crisis, many Chinese uh, have less confidence in the United States economy, and they see that you know, the Americans are not as competent as, think, as they think uh, they are. Uh, and some, as you just said, some thought that the United States was on the decline. But when I personally talked to some economic decision makers, they said, well, we are in the, if you are talking about market economy, and then the financial institutions, mature financial institutions, including insurance companies and so on, investment, we are still infants. They are adults. And adults make more mistakes than infants, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we don't take pleasure from uh, their mistakes. We, we should learn to avoid making the same kind of mistakes. And so Secretary Clinton, when she was in China, she reminded Chinese, you, know, you don't you should not make the same kind of mistakes we made in the past. She was referring to climate change and uh, energy uh, development and so on. Okay, um, here in the front, this gentleman. Thank you, Madam. Raghuvir from India Globe in Asia today. A quick question that uh, millions of Chinese are looking forward to have a rule of law, not force, but human rights and also democracy, uh, like here or elsewhere in the U.S. or next door in India. Do you see the future of China that millions will be free from the one-man or one-party rule? And also, second, there are two giants next to each other. One is largest democracy, India, and second largest communist, part, communist country, China. What do you see the future? I think China has already gone uh, uh, beyond the stage of one-man rule. But one-party rule was, will be sustained for a long time to come. I, I, I cannot say, well, 100 years, 200 years, but I think that will endure for, for the time being because it works well. Uh, because you know, the, the pe you know, people will say, well, if we had a two-party system, would our, would our life be better? Uh, so that is a legitimate question. So talking about democracy, I think there could be ideas that democracy could be built in within the Communist Party itself, more checks and balances, more rule of law, 
but at the same uh, at this stage, people actually were talking about are uh, talking about rule by law, uh, even rule by law is different than rule by man. So I think um, uh, there are different types of democracy, Indian um, type and American type. So China will have its own type of democracy in the future. So I don't think the Chinese Communist Party has given up the idea of building democracy, rule of law, but that, that is, a, is, a, is a question of time and uh, specific steps and whether it could, uh, could uh, meet the Chinese conditions and people's consciousness. You know, uh, when we have uh, lawsuits, we have disputes, people are seeking you know, government intervention, government control. You know, common people, I'm not talking about people, do not go to the courts, do not go to um, NGOs or whatever. So it takes some time for, for people to raise their political consciousness before they really have enjoy um, high, a higher degree of democracy. Okay, we'll take another question over here. Connie Kremens with Tech Trans International, a language services company. My question is, uh, how do both of you view cooperation in the space frontier as a means of deepening U.S.-Chinese relations, and both from a civil, scientific, commercial, and military strategic perspective? Hmm. We, uh, when I was Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans, Environment, and Science, which was a long time ago now, uh, I was involved in uh, restoring space uh, cooperation with the Soviet Union. I remember doing that sort of 1986, 87, something like that. And the big issue was uh, guarding against uh, technology transfer problems. Um, we've never really gotten very far with China, as I understand it, in the area of space cooperation. Uh, I think there's a dis there was a disposition on the part of NASA to to uh, do more uh, and an interest, uh, but uh, just uh, no one really ever organized around the issue in the government. There just wasn't enough enthusiasm for it, so um, it's probably an area where we could do more, uh, but it happened up until now. One of the potential obstacles, I think, is that you have a, an integration of the civil and military space program in China, whereas in the United States those are separate. So that's, that's one challenge. And, of course, as NASA tried to open up to China uh, in January 2007, we had the anti-satellite test, and that raised some concerns yeah. here about whether to move forward. But there was interest in doing it even after that. Mm -hmm. um, and it just had, it didn't prosper in the last administration. Yes. I should, we shouldn't give up on it, and I'm sure we would benefit from a scientific point of view. I'm sure we'd benefit from more exchanges. Okay, another question? This side over here. Thank you. Uh, Wang Shenshen, American University. Uh, from a little Beijing. louder, please. We can't hear you. It was on. You just got to speak uh, louder. Wang Shenshen, uh, American University from Beijing. 
Uh, it's very interesting to observe this uh, great dialogue here going on here, but um, I'm very glad to hear that you were talking about this U.S. thinking of engaging China into nuclear talks or dialogue or kind of building up these institutions. But I want to throw in uh, Japan because we haven't heard of this. My question is actually uh, how this current um, Obama administration going to behave really smartly in handling embracing China and also balancing its traditional military alliance existed in Asia. Because here, whenever uh, we talk about Asia uh, from Americans' perspective, we often see it as a, a whole, but actually it's not the same Asia. We have Japan, China, uh, South Korea, and various uh, different kind of culture, different kind of perceptions. So, uh, so my question is really uh, regarding this, how this um, how do you see uh, that the current administration going to carry out its, you know, in, in, in while at the same time uh, embracing China and also uh, pleasing or not hurting the feelings of old allies? Right. Mm. I, I mean, if you take what we were trying to do in the Bush administration, and I don't, I, I don't, I, I sense that it, the new administration is trying to do the same thing, which is to be very uh, supportive, of course, of the U.S.-Japan alliance relationship, which is a real cornerstone of our uh, involvement in the East Asia-Pacific region. And so you press ahead with that. And they certainly, I mean, Mrs. Clinton went there first, and the first uh, international leader to come to the White House was the Prime Minister of Japan. And all of that is consistent with the notion of uh, putting... uh, a good emphasis on the U.S.-Japan alliance, but at the same time, uh, moving ahead with uh, uh, a strong uh, bilateral relationship with China. And uh, I think, in fact, it's, uh, it's easier to do if you pursue them both rather than give the appearance of pursuing one to the exclusion of, uh, of the other. I think we have an interest in doing both. I think that's accepted by both countries as best I understand it. And probably one of the most interesting manifestations of that is the work we've all been able to do together in the six-party talks, although I recognize that Japan at times has been a bit um, concerned uh, about the, uh, the ad- abductee issue uh, in relation to those uh, talks, but uh, no, I think you've got to do both at the same time, and I think that's the right course of action. And I sense that's what this administration would like to do. If I could interject just yeah. a brief question here: Do you think that the time has now come for a U.S.-China-Japan dialogue? This was tossed around; it was proposed by mm-hmm. Dai Binguo at one point in one of his conversations. Well, you know, people come up with the most incredible geometries around here. I mean, <laughs> well, there's it, lots of triangles And it goes world. on, yeah. <laughs> it's ASEAN, ASEAN plus three, uh, the big dialogue, the little dialogue, and then they China, uh, Japan, U.S., you just suggested. Some people say, well, what about, okay. I remember, uh, no, but it was uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, in Japan who wanted to uh, uh, U.S., Japan, India, which uh, clearly I think mm-hmm. there was sort of China in mind there, the sort of keeping them out. I, I, you know, I think we benefit from a more inclusive uh, approach. And, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't rule out the idea of a, those, those kinds of three-way talks, but I'm not sure that, I, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know. You'd have to analyze 
carefully what you think it adds, what the knock-on effects are, mm -hmm. and whether you then have to create some compensatory forum to deal with somebody who felt left, left out. out. Right. Good uh, point. Like South Korea, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Wong, your thoughts? Mm. I think it's still a very good idea. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> to have a U.S.-China-Japan dialogue, but there, there, there are already many, many uh, uh, that are, are, you know, some of them I participated in. Uh, next week, I'm going to Hawaii to have a trilateral dialogue. So. Uh, with with our Japanese and American, but it's track two, right? Track, I mean. no, not even track two, no, it's track nine. <laughs> 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 there are okay. so many tracks at the educational <laughs> level and so on. So um, I think uh, we could uh, think about the idea of upgrading some of the lower level uh, official dialogues into higher level uh, ones. And I think there are some people in this administration the current administration, who are very enthusiastic. Uh, and I see that also there are some people in China who are ready to cooperate with, uh, with the US and Japan. Uh, because you know, we could start from some non-confrontational and not so sensitive issues like climate change, energy uh, efficiency, uh, and, and other things, rather than you know, talking about North Korea uh, or the South China Sea. So, uh, and that would be some good starting points. Uh, uh, because, you know, the United States, China, and Japan are just number one, number two, number three economies in the world today. So uh, they put them together, how, how, how much percentage? Almost you know, about 40%, 40 percent percent of the world GDP is generated by these three oh, economies. Okay, we'll take another question. Um, let's go to this side. In the back, this young woman sitting over there. Oh. Hi, uh, Peggy Chang with Voice of America China Branch. Um, my ha I have uh, two separate questions um, for um, Professor Wang and um, Ambassador Negroponte. Um, it's regarding about Taiwan, and um, uh, recently Premier Wen Jiabao talked about, um, when he talked about Taiwan, he mentioned uh, reunification. And of course, right now, everybody's welcoming the uh, um, improved relations, uh, the improved prostate relations. But I'm just um, curious, in your um, conversations with uh, Chinese officials or um, uh, Chinese other uh, scholars, um, when you see the improved economic relations um, in, uh, between Taiwan and China, do you also see like this is a step toward reunification? Um, because, um, uh, of course, Ma Ying-jeou uh, government is saying that uh, Taiwan doesn't want reunification, independence, and uh, war. Um, I mean, because from uh, reading uh, Chinese media, I, I, I feel like there's uh, a lot of scholars or um, officials kind of feels that this is, it seems like it's a, it's a, it's a Can sign. Can you make it short, please? Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, um, so um, that's my question. And my, my other question for um, Ambassador Negroponte is that um, it's been 15 years uh, since Taiwan, there's a, a Taiwan policy review, and I was wondering, uh, under this changed circumstance right now in cross-relations, rela some scholars uh, in the U.S. have talked about a Taiwan policy review. Is, uh, is time to do that. What, what's your thought about that? Thank you. I, I think uh, when we talk about unification, reunification between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan, we have to uh, think about what is the 
the real meaning of that word. I mean, uh, already we have a lot of economic integration between the two sides. And uh, the good sign is that uh, 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 Ma Ying-jeou and his associates uh, are talking more and more about, uh, about them being Chinese, being part of China, although sometimes they have they have to be very careful in, in, in if using their words. So uh, we see real pro progress uh, in, in that direction. Uh, talking about political unification is still, you know, that is still a long way to go. Uh, Ma Ying-jeou uh, says openly that he is not uh, in favor of unification today. At least, uh, no, <laughs> not unification, no unification, no independence at this moment. So I think the, the mainland side uh, is patient. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think the two sides are working very hard to uh, improve uh, ex and expand their economic relations first. And uh, at the same time, there were more personnel exchanges, more visits, and more even high-level visits without, uh, without uh, worrying too much about names, uh, their titles. And then uh, the next step will be more dialogues uh, 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 in, uh, at political levels. And finally, I think they will also be talking about security concerns, mutual security concerns. And uh, there are many floating ideas and some serious considerations about how to reduce military tensions on, uh, to, uh, and prevent uh, uh, prevention of crisis. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, just uh, on your first question, I, I certainly look at any of these steps that are taken, like uh, increased investment or exchanges, as, as certainly a way of reducing whatever else. It's certainly a way of reducing cross-strait tensions. And you, you do have to remember, a little more than a decade ago, I mean, we had we had some real tension uh, in the Straits. I guess in 1994, 95, 95, 96. Yeah, I was in the Philippines at the time. I remember being very mindful uh, of that. But on your second question. You know, if you uh, decide to have a policy review and it becomes publicly known beforehand, uh, what you're going to do is mobilize all the forces on every side of this issue and there's going to be great lobbying efforts vis-a-vis uh, -vis our Congress and the administration. And I think you're going to create some kind of a, you're going to whip up some kind of a frenzy on the Taiwan issue. I mean, it's certainly, I can tell you personally, I, I wouldn't want to see that happen. I would just carry out the policy on a pragmatic basis, frankly. There's also the danger in a review that people who want to see change don't well, see the change that they want to see. The outcome can be worse. That's my point, yeah. Oh, well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we have time maybe for two more questions. Uh, over here. My name is Yongwan Kiel, uh, currently at Georgetown University. Can you speak up, please? We can't hear you. Okay. Uh, my question is to Professor Wang. Uh, China's rise and the two Koreas, that's the title of a book just published uh, by one of my uh, friends. Uh, now, he maintains that uh, China's relationship with South Korea has been transformed economically.
economically through trade and investment uh, promotion, whereas China's relationship with North Korea, especially on the nuclear, uh, as a testing uh, two years ago, for instance, or three years ago, rather, was not uh, lacking to China. Would you uh, share your perspective of how to, how China is maintaining the balance between Seoul and Pyongyang? I think, uh, yes, China's uh, relations with both Pyongyang and Seoul um, uh, are at least normal. Uh, and that is uh, very exceptional. Um, and you know, in the, in the six-party talks, uh, China's role is unique. But I don't think there are many people considerations along the, the lines that we should keep a balance between, between the two. Uh, I think uh, China is doing well in promoting trade and uh, investment with South Korea. Uh, and China is developing uh, a meaningful economic uh, uh, cooperation, uh, you know, uh, 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 relationship with North as well. And it is not in China's best interest to have the two parts of the Korean Peninsula to fight each other. And uh, I think the Chinese government has done a great deal to, uh, to, uh, to persuade North Korea to, uh, to be careful in its international behavior, uh, not to explode nuclear weapons, and recently there are reports that North Korea is ready to launch a satellite or whatever device. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it, China's role there is also to remind the North Koreans that such, a, such an action may not uh, be in their best interest. And in that regard, I think there is a lot of common grounds between, between, between South Korea and China. Uh, so, I don't I don't see any any tensions there. I mean, between the, our relationship between uh, uh, with North Korea and our relationship with South Korea. Would you like to add to that? Uh, except uh, to say that I think China during during my experience, uh, China was extremely helpful in the six party talks, and I don't think we could have gotten as far as we did without uh, the collaboration of the People's Republic of China. And hopefully that will continue going I, forward I'm as the confident. problem is, is long from resolved. Oh, it's long from resolved, <laughs> but uh, that's not China's fault. That's no. <laughs> we, we have, we think, have a uh, lot and, of And they're quick interest. to point out, I don't think the professor would contradict me, that, that while they may have uh, a good relationship with North Korea, or at least a relations with North Korea, they, they can't dictate to North Korea what it does, and that North Korea is not exactly the easiest customer in the world. All right, we'll take one last question um, here in front. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dong Huiyu with uh, China Press. I have a question for Dr. Wang. And uh, I know many uh, Chinese people oppose China to increase its holdings of U.S. Treasury. But we do see China continue to buy more 
uh, dollar treasury in the past several years, uh, several months. So, uh, according to your experience contacting with a Chinese policymaker, what's the reason behind that? Thank you. You're asking what is the reason behind China's the fact that China is continuing to buy our treasury bonds? <laughs> He's saying, why would you do that? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there aren't too many good alternative investments at this point that are as, as safe uh, as U.S. Treasury bonds. But uh, I'll let Dr. Wang yeah, answer I, the I, question. I, I, I agree. I agree. I, I agree. I, I um, read the, you know, the report uh, several weeks back when one Chinese um, uh, uh, advisor said that there is no alternative. And then quickly he was uh, under, probably under some pressure to make, to make a correction, saying this is w that is one of our options. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think the, the latter, of course, is a politically correct uh, answer. But the, I think <laughs> uh, the first answer was his uh, instinct. I think there, there, there is not a viable option or viable alternative to buying U.S. Treasury bonds, but uh, it, it depends also on the U.S. economy, uh, the U.S. financial situation today, uh, because uh, some Chinese uh, uh, are losing money uh, in their capital market in the United States, and that uh, is, a, is a casualty and how, yeah, so, so I think that these economists and uh, financial decision makers will, be, will, will, will take note and then look at the situation cautiously. Uh, and in their remarks, they are also very cautious. I should just emphasize to our questioner, I know you asked about the views of policy officials in Beijing, and Professor Wang is only speaking uh, on behalf of his own opinion and not on behalf of anybody else in, in Beijing. Uh, anything you'd like to add to that, Ambassador? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's probably a very wise decision. <laughs> but as Secretary, uh, uh, I just said, spent we're this morning at an investor conference, and I, uh, <laughs> I'd rather not tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, we'll save that for another time. Well, um, I please join me in uh, thanking Ambassador Negroponte and Professor Bisa. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.